I was reminded this week that I'm getting a little bit older. A young gentleman came to my house with his father to come help me do some work, and he had a shirt on that had some event, 1987. And I looked at him and I said, Do you know what I was doing in 1987? I graduated from high school. Now, for some of you, you say, well, I was getting married or something else. But it reminded me that um, the things that I think happened yesterday have just been a bit of time ago. And one of the things that I recall as I was thinking about the sermon this week is a movie called The Karate Kid. I don't normally give introductions or illustrations from movies, but I think this one's safe. It's 20 years old and it's pretty clean. And you may recall, even if you didn't see the movie, the the plot of it was that there was this Japanese mysterious teacher, Mr. Miyagi. And Ralph Macchio, who I think then was about 30 and playing somebody 14, wanted to learn how to fight karate. And so Mr. Miyagi agreed to teach him. There was only one problem. The way he taught him was, if you recall, what? Paint a fence. And the boy said, I don't understand what this has anything to do with karate. Come on, show me how to kick somebody or hit somebody. And then after paint a fence, it was what? Wax on, wax off. And you're wondering, what in the world's going on here? This guy's trying to get work for free out of this boy, Right? You wonder why he's having him do these sorts of things. And later on in the movie, you find out that these motions are really motions that can be used in karate. And he uses them to help win a match. Now, why the stroll down memory lane? Well, it's because I think that illustrates a truth that we all know, and that is that the things that we know, even if we don't know that we know them, affect the way we live our lives. Right? How many of you have had the experience of driving to work on Saturday? You just get on the highway and you're going there. You get on autopilot, right? I've done that more than a few times. Well, here, Paul is pressing this truth home in a pointed and directed way to the Galatians. He's reminding them and telling them that what they know affects the way they live. And it's important to know the right things. As a matter of fact, it's not just important. It is critical. It is vital in every sense of the word. It is life-giving. It is important. And he's describing for them that they know, they have been told the true gospel. And they're wavering in their knowledge of that. And it's affecting their lives. And so Paul wants to bring them to remembrance. And he has sharp words here. He's talking about a false gospel and what it's doing to the Galatians. And so in these few verses, I'd like us to see three things this morning. The first thing I would like us to see is the distortion of a false gospel. The distortion of a false gospel. And then secondly, I'd like us to see desertion because of this false gospel. This false gospel that distorts and then causes desertion. And then finally, Paul ends with a defense of the true gospel, explaining to the Galatians what is important and true, and they know. It's there, wax on, wax off. 
Something in the back of their minds that just needs to be brought to the forefront. Well, let us then look and see what God has to say to us from this letter to this church in Galatia. First, let's see the distortion that comes from a false gospel. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul knows there are people trying to mess up the gospel. This is not an accident. This is not what you secretly fear when John asks you if you would be involved in evangelism explosion. That you'll forget the verses. Or you'll forget where to find them in your Bible. Or that you'll forget your Bible. No. This is a willing distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a context, remember, here for Paul reminding them of this. There's a different emphasis that comes from those who are teaching a false gospel. Do you remember what Paul's emphasis is? Remember that Paul planted these churches. If you want to read the story about it, all you need to do is this afternoon, before lunch, during lunch, after lunch, turn to Acts chapter 13 and read 13, 14, and a little bit into 15. And you'll see a context here. It's a context of an incredibly successful missionary journey. Paul going out and emphasizing the glory of God. Applying the Old Testament Scriptures about the glory of the one who would not see corruption. Applying the Old Testament Scriptures about the glorious works of God to Jesus Christ. He also emphasizes God above Himself. That's where that passage comes where a man is healed. And the residents of a town want to call Paul and Barnabas gods. They call one Mercury and they call one Jupiter. Two of the prime gods of the Greek pantheon. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We're men like you. We don't want the glory. Give it to God. He also, on that journey, was out for the good of the Galatians. He risked his own life to bring them the Gospel, both Jew and Gentile. He wanted to see them grow. He wanted to see them believe the truth. He wanted to see them have life. And then finally, he wanted to build up the church. But these troublemakers, they have a different emphasis altogether. Their emphasis is their own glory. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They're happy to teach. So long as the Galatians say, Oh, those wonderful teachers. They're so smart. They're much smarter than I am. Oh, they're so much holier than I am. They love to hear their own glory. But they also have an emphasis on their own comfort. You remember we looked at that a few weeks ago in chapter 5 and verse 12, that they're doing this to avoid persecution. They want the glory. They want the comfort. And then finally, their emphasis is not on building up, but tearing down the church, making factions, causing difficulties. It's their work that bears the fruit at the end of chapter 5, where Paul has to admonish the Galatians saying, let us not become conceited. Let's not provoke one another. Let's not envy. You see, that's the legacy of these teachers. It's the exact opposite of Paul. It's a completely different emphasis. 
because it comes from a false gospel. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where they always somehow seem to turn the conversation back to themselves? You say, my daughter was really sick last week with pneumonia. And before you can get the second sentence out, they say, oh, I know that. When I was 16, I had pneumonia and it was horrible and I was in pain. Or you say, my son just made first string on the baseball team. And they say, oh, you know, I remember when I was young. I... That's what the Galatians are all about. They're all about them. There's no gospel, no otherness. It's all about them is where the emphasis is. There's also a different authority that they have. You see, they are, Paul says, troublemakers in verse 7. That's literally what the word is. Those who trouble you, it's one word, troublemakers. You see, they seemed to come from James, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 20. They seemed to have authority, but the interesting thing is, in Acts 15, Paul calls them, or excuse me, James calls them troublemakers in verse 24 of chapter 15. They didn't really come from James. They just wanted to have the authority of James. And one of their main weapons was to put down Paul. You know Paul, that's the guy that wasn't a real apostle. He didn't walk with our Lord for three years. This Johnny come lately. We were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. We were there when. We were there when. Where was Paul? They put him down. You kids have probably experienced this tactic, right? You're talking with someone. You're in a group. You're trying to explain something that you really like. And rather than discuss what that is, it could be your favorite sports team, It could be a thing you like to do. Someone instead decides to attack you. They call you stupid. They call you short. They call you fat. They attack you. Adults experience this too, don't we? Sometimes the words are a little bit more veiled, but they're just as sharp. You see, that's what the Galatians, who are troublemakers, are all about. Attacking and putting down Paul. They're causing fear and doubt in the Galatians. You see, this word here for troublemaking or causing trouble is used elsewhere in the New Testament. You remember when the the disciples are watching Jesus walk on the water in the middle of the night and they're afraid? Same word. Do you remember when at the end of Luke's Gospel there's great doubt that fills the disciples? Same word. You see, the Galatian heretics, these Judaizers, these troublemakers, are trying to cause fear and doubt in the church. And you see, the sad thing is they are using the authority of the church to do this. They're saying, we are the real representatives of the church. We are the ones that James sent. When you see, really, the church has authority but it doesn't come from itself. It comes from the Word of God. That's where real authority is found. That's why the Bereans were noble, because they checked what Paul said in accordance with the Scriptures. You might think of it this way. Have you ever been to an art museum? You've been to an art museum, and sometimes, perhaps, 
There may have been a tour guide, an art aficionado, or someone who is an art critic. And he'll point and he'll say, this is a good example of a Van Gogh, and this is a bad example, and this is that and the other. Do the words of that art critic make those paintings authentic? No. It's the very nature of the painting that allows the critic to see that it is authentic. And that's the way it is with the Word in the church. The church sees the Scriptures and expounds the Scriptures and gets its authority from the Scriptures. That's where the true Gospel is found. Because you see... These Judaizers had not only a different emphasis and a different authority, but they had a different gospel entirely. And it was very plausible sounding. It might have gone something like this. Well, you know, Paul had it good as far as he went. But let me fill you in on the rest. Let me give you the details. Paul's right about Jesus and he's right about faith, but you need to hear this about circumcision. And you need to hear this about covenant keeping. And you need to really think this about covenant faithfulness. Let me just fill you in with what I have. And you see how that goes easily in line with claims of additional truth and revelation. A word of practical advice. Anytime someone comes up to you and says, I have this marvelous truth that I've got from the Scriptures and no one has ever heard of it before, and no one has ever taught it before, it's probably wrong. There's a pretty good reason why thousands of men and women over thousands of years haven't thought of something in a text that hasn't changed. It's probably because it's not there. But you see, these Judaizers are finding things. They're adding to the Gospel. And what they're doing is they're distorting the gospel into its exact opposite. This word here for distort is used in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember the famous passage where it says, the sun will turn to darkness in the day of the Lord? Same word. The sun will distort to darkness. Or we might say, they are distorting, changing the truth of the gospel into a lie. That's what they're doing. And this can happen to us if we're not careful. That's why we spend time thinking about false things. To defend and guard ourselves. To hedge ourselves from teaching falsehood. Because it's not as if these Judaizers walked around with t-shirts on that said, Kiss me, I'm a legalist. Or, if you really want to live a hard life, listen to me. No. They were saying things that were beneficial and good and had been good for many, many years. Circumcision was a good thing. It was instituted by God. And you see, we can fall prey to the same thing. We can make the Gospel family values. Now, I'm all for family values, and I'm all for strong families. But that's a result of the gospel. It's not the gospel. And so, that's not the theme that we pound home week after week from God's Word. It's a result and fruit of the gospel. For some, it's personal fulfillment. That, too, is a good thing. 
We want to live lives that are satisfying and are worthy. But that's not the gospel. The gospel leads to that. It's not morality. The message of the gospel is not be good. Although the command from God after receiving the gospel is most certainly follow my law. But that comes after the gospel. Not before, not in substitute of. We can even make the gospel out of our theology and distinctives. Now do not get me wrong. I love the Lord's Day. I don't have any images of our Lord in our house. But that's not the gospel. That flows from the gospel. We begin with the gospel and then we press home the truth of God's Word to those who have been converted. Because it's only they who can obey. We want to begin at the beginning and then move on. Now what happens? Why all the concern about this? Why is it so important to get the gospel right? Why is Paul so up in arms? I mean, after all, he doesn't even start by saying, thank you, Galatians. He starts right in with, I'm amazed. I'm astonished. It's because of our second point. That a distortion of the gospel leads to desertion. Desertion because of a false gospel. Look with me at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What are they leaving? What are they deserting? Well, first and foremost, they're leaving true doctrine, true teaching. You see, the Holy Spirit does not protect us without our study of the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit protects us through our study of the Scriptures. God wants you to read your Bible more, not less. Because it's being in His Word that we are instructed to walk in the path in which we are to go. To believe what we are to believe. To know what God requires of us. You see, this false gospel, it's not really even a gospel, Paul says. It's no gospel at all. And he uses what almost seems like a play on words. He says, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. It's as if he's saying, listen, it's different, but it's really not different because this is a one of a kind. You know how they do that sometimes with coins or with figurines? We even have a phrase that comes from it. It's called breaking the mold. You know? When they made Him, they really broke the mold, right? There's no one like Him. But that's the way the Gospel is. There's no other Gospel like it. There's no knockoff. You can't get the Gospel light. You can with other things. You know, I was thinking this week that one of the things I want to do is go out and get myself some more cologne. Didn't really move too much of it. It's breakable. And being the sort of man that I am, I don't go out and buy the name brand thing and pay four times the price. I go to CVS or whatever and I buy the knockoff. I can't tell the difference. But with the Gospel, there is no knockoff. There is no way to find a different Gospel. Because a different Gospel would mean a different Jesus. You see, Paul's argument goes like this. If the law is still what counts then the Messianic Kingdom, the Kingdom of Christ, is not here yet. Because the law is still here. 
And if the kingdom of Christ is not here yet, then Jesus Christ is a liar and not God. He's not the Christ. So you see, by denying the gospel, you're denying who Jesus is. You can't do that. And you see, this is the tactic that the devil takes all the time. You see, the devil is not about frontal assaults. How does Paul describe Satan? As a wicked, horned half-goat, right? No. As a short man dressed all in black with a long mustache. No. He says he comes as an angel of light. That's always Satan's plan. He creates what he thinks is a cheap knockoff of God's reality. God is the king of the universe. So what does Satan do? He makes a knockoff kingdom for himself. God has servants who serve him. So what does Satan do? He makes a knockoff slaves in bondage to sin. God says, this is what my word says. And Satan twists it and knocks it off. That's what he's about. It's an effective tactic. We talked about World War II last week. There's another famous illustration. Do you remember before D-Day? We talked about D-Day, right? Some of you may not even remember this, but you remember the movie Patton. And you remember what the American forces did? Even though Patton was in disgrace, they brought him up to England and they set him at the place of England opposite to where everybody knew they were going to invade at the Pas de Calais. And instead, they were going to land down the shore at Normandy. And Patton was not going to lead the invasion. And they let all of these messages go in secret code that they knew the Germans had broken, saying, Patton's going to lead this force. This is where it is. And they even created fake tanks and fake airplanes so that German reconnaissance would see them. And when the Germans wanted reinforcements at Normandy, they were told no because the real invasion's coming at Calais with Patton. That's how Satan works. He deceives you. He makes you think you're serving God by offering up your merit. He wants you to be enslaved and not know it. That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians. You don't know it, but you're in bondage. Wake up. You see, we like they cannot assume that we have the gospel. You notice that Paul, the Apostle Paul, a very smart and very godly man, you notice how he begins this? I am astonished. You know, one commentator puts it this way. He says the, Brit- the British might say it's, he's uh, gobsmacked. Put your hand over your mouth. Maybe you do it by smacking your forehead. He can't believe it. It's unbelievable that so quickly they have gone astray. You see, when we begin to assume that we have the gospel, the most dangerous thing is when we are succeeding. Remember Paul's missionary journey. Lots of people were converted. These churches were growing. And it's in that success that the enemy tries to work his mischief. The enemy is not going to bother sowing tares in a dead church. He wants one that's alive so he can get after it and kill it. Right? 
When you have weeds in your yard, do you spend all your time digging up the ones that are already dead or do you get at the ones that are alive and growing around your bushes and killing them? The latter. You see, that's what's happening here. And you see, when they leave this true teaching, this true doctrine, it shows that not only are they leaving teaching, they're leaving grace. Look what Paul says. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. You see, they've been called by grace. And now, they're leaving it. And that's a dangerous place to be. This is a very real danger. Paul says in chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he says in chapter 5, at verse 4, he says, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Where grace is found, they are walking away from them. And Paul doesn't want that. You remember last week? What was Paul's opening words to them? As a matter of fact, it's his opening word. Grace to you. Paul wants them to have grace. He wants them to succeed. He wants them to have lives marked by grace. That's how he ends this letter. The last verse says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. They're leaving the place where Paul knows life is found. And they're leaving it for nothing. Do you see also how quickly it happens that they leave from grace? Look at what Paul says. He says, I'm astonished not just that you've left, but you've left so quickly. It's because it's part of our nature to want credit. It's part of our nature, even when describing the work of God in our lives, to somehow point it back to us. Don't we do that if we're not careful? Someone comes up to us and says, how did you become a Christian? And the next few sentences are marked by many a pronoun. I. Well, you see, I was living this way. And I was caught in sin. And then I found a Bible. Or I had someone talk to me. And then I thought about this. And then I believed. And then I, and then I. It's just natural. We need to fight that by the Spirit of grace. It's a part of our broken image to want to get credit. How does that manifest itself with us? In our lives, in your lives... How does that quickness to point to ourselves manifest itself? Maybe it's, as I said in a testimony, maybe it's in how quickly we are to rise up to our own rights. Well, I'm not going to forgive him. He had no right to speak to me that way. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm a pastor. Doesn't he know who I am? I teach Sunday school. He's just a kid. He's not really a friend of mine. We jump to our own defense. And so, when we leave the true teaching of God, we wind up leaving the grace of God, but that is not where it ends. You see, Paul says you wind up leaving God Himself. 
Do you see what he says? He doesn't just say, you've deserted grace. He says, you have deserted him who called you by grace. You see, believing the distortion of a false gospel means that we wind up deserting God. You, we might put it this way. You can't give up the gospel without giving up on God. You may not think of it that way, but it's true. It's one of the reasons why doctrine is so important. It's one of the reasons why thinking about grace is so important. Because when you start leaving that, you leave God Himself and all His blessings and all His comfort. You leave God. The word here for deserting has the connotation that exactly you might think. I'm sure that if Chris, after he graduated from basic, heard the word, you're a deserter, he would be very upset. Because desertion means you've left your side. You've turned coward and you're going to be punished. And you see, Paul says, this is what you're in danger of. You're deserting God. But he doesn't end there with these words of chastisement. He reminds the Galatians that there's a false gospel in their midst. It's distorted. It's wicked. And it's causing them problems. They're experiencing desertion from God Himself, from His grace, and from His truth. But Paul then uses this as an occasion to rally them to the defense of the true gospel. I want you to notice something. Paul's not very politically correct here. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let me tell you, that's not a very nice thing. If anyone should preach a gospel that is contrary to what we have preached to you, then I think what we need to do is sit down and have about a half dozen conversations and think about how we can come to a better understanding together of what you're saying and treat each other with the utmost of respect and dignity. No, that's not what Paul says. He'll say that in other occasions where it's minor issues. But when the Gospel's at stake, he says, let him be accursed. The strongest word Paul can think of. It's the word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe, you know, when something was devoted entirely over to God, the Israelites would go out, they'd conquer a city, they'd take the stuff and they'd burn it, devote it to God. It's called giving it to the ban so it's gone forever. That's what Paul says. It's to be destroyed. It's fit for burning. There's no games here to be played. He is not afraid to call a spade a spade when the gospel is at stake. We need that kind of courage today when the gospel is at stake. You see, Paul here is denying pluralism. Paul will have none of the, well, the emphasis that these Judaizers have is just a little bit different than I would have. But, you know, they went to a different theological school. Well, they, they use a different version of the Bible. Let's cut them some slack. Well, they're second, third generation believers, so they're caught up in certain patterns and habits. No. Paul rushes to the defense of the true gospel. And he says that this is necessary in the church because you need to remember that no truth or a false truth leads to no God. 
Remember Paul's chain? Desert from the truth, desert from grace, desert God. Paul puts it another way in Ephesians 5, at verse 11. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what Paul is doing here. And Paul's not even worried about his authority. You remember how he started the letter? Paul, an apostle, not of man, but of God. Paul is so fired up in his defense of the gospel that he goes on and he says, listen, if you catch me saying anything that isn't the gospel, let me be accursed. Don't listen to me. It's got to be the gospel. That's how much I'm defending the gospel. Don't even listen to me. As a matter of fact, don't even listen to an angel. And we might think, well, that seems kind of odd. Why? Paul, it's a little bit over the top. How about you or Barnabas or Peter? Why an angel? Well, I don't know that Paul knew this, but I'm certain our Lord had it in design that many centuries after Paul would be dead and buried, that a man would rise up and say that he received an additional gospel from an angel. And it's a gospel of works. And he founded a religion called Mormonism. And it keeps people in bondage. And do Mormons say, well, we're not Christians. We can't stand the Christians. No. They're just another way of the Christians. They believe the Bible and this other book. They do all the things that Christians do, and these other things. Do you see how easily the slide is? That's what happens. Paul repeats himself. He says, listen, I told you once, I'll tell you twice. If you hear anything other than what was preached to you, do not believe it. Let him be accursed. Because it is contrary to the nature of the gospel to worry about one's own authority. Paul says it in verse 10. We're going to look at it next week. He says, listen, I'm not trying to please men. If I please men, I failed. I want to please God. I'm not worried about my own reputation. And so Paul is not only quick to condemn false gospels, so much so that he's not worried about his own authority, but he's also quick to show them the right way. There's something interesting about this passage here, if you notice it. He says... I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting present tense. Happening right now. Him who called past tense. Happened in the past. You in the grace of Christ and are turning present tense. Bad. Happening now. To a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach, present tense, happening right now, to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached in the past, what you've already got and is good, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now say I again, if anyone is preaching right now, to you a gospel contrary to the one you received in the past. Let him be accursed. 
Do you see what Paul's setting up here? What he's doing is he's saying it's not too late. You're deserting, but you haven't deserted. And the reason you haven't deserted is because one has called you already. These people are preaching bad things, but remember what was preached to you that was true. He's saying there's hope for repentance. This is not, and I told you so, from Paul. This is not, you dumb Galatians, I've given up on you. I'm going to Athens. No. This is, I desire your repentance and the gospel to be manifest in your life again. You see, he's contrasting their present situation with the past. He says, you know it. You may have forgotten it. Someone may have taught you some fancy fighting technique, made you forget, wax on, wax off, but you need to think back. Remember, paint the fence. He's calling to their remembrance. He's saying, it's not like I need to tell you this fresh. You already know the Gospel. You've already seen it in your lives. It's almost as if, if Paul had more time and he was there, he'd say, you remember the kind of man that Jim was. And look what the Gospel did for him and his family. Do you remember what life was like here before this church was here? Do you remember your relationships before you came to Christ? Do you remember what your marriage was like? Children, do you remember how you fought with your parents all the time before the Gospel came in your life? He's reminding them of all that is good in the Gospel. Well, in conclusion here, how do we take what Paul's saying, how do we protect ourselves in this defense of the Gospel? How do we apply it to ourselves? I think there are three things that we need to think about and be honest with ourselves. A main defense to this seems so simple, but often it's the first thing that zips right out the door. I know it does for me. It's Paul's command to the Thessalonians where he says something simple. Pray without ceasing. If you're in communion with the One who called you and gives you the Gospel, how can you desert Him? And if you're in communion with Him, how are you not going to believe His Word? So, I urge you, brothers and sisters, be fervent in prayer. Being fervent in prayer will drive you to the Word. It will bond your relationships. Pray with your wife. Pray with your husband. Pray with your children. Show them the Gospel in your life as you pray for forgiveness for your sins. Mom and dad aren't perfect. But mom and dad know one who is. And who's willing to hear everything from our heart. Pray without ceasing. And then, go to where the Gospel's found. It's found in God's Word. It's found all over God's Word. It's in the Gospel of Isaiah. Tidings. Glad tidings. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news. The captives are set free. It's in Genesis. You shall crush his head. It's in Exodus. In the story of the Exodus and the redemption and the Passover. It's in the prophets calling Israel back to God. 
It's in the Gospels themselves. Be in God's Word. And you'll have armor, Paul says, in the book of Ephesians, to fight off the devil when he tries this sneaky pas de Calais sneak attack on you. You can beat him back with the Word of God. Our Lord did that, didn't He? It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. If the Word of God is good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ to beat back Satan, it surely is good enough for you and I, isn't it? Then finally, cling to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying implicitly here. He's saying, you're deserting the one who has called you to the grace of Jesus. Stay near Jesus. That'd be some bottom line advice. You want to be in the range of the gospel? Stay near Jesus. Get as close to Jesus as you can. Because the gospel is found there. Because it's His grace, isn't it? Verse 6, the grace of Christ. It's His gospel, isn't it? Verse 7, the gospel of Christ. And we looked last week, it's His work. Isn't it? Verse 4. He gave Himself. Staying near Jesus is where grace, the gospel, and the work of God is found. That's what Paul wants for the Galatians. That's what Paul wants for you. He doesn't want you to be deceived, tricked by a false gospel. He doesn't want you to wake up someday and say, Oh, if I'd only known. If I'd only thought hard about it. No. He says, God has a hold of you. He's called you. Don't desert Him. He won't let you. He's called you. It's His work from beginning to end. This is how Paul begins. It's triumphant. It's in your face. He's not mincing any words here. And it's just the beginning of the glorious message that he's going to give us throughout this book. Because if you think about it, one thing that Paul really doesn't do in these verses is define what the gospel is. He just says it's of critical importance. And he's going to spend the next few chapters telling us about what this gospel is that's so critical to us. May we have ears to hear and hearts that are open to his word.